0: Welcome to Primarily 2020, the podcast all about the 2020 democratic primary. This week on the Primarily podcast, we will be recapping a couple of new entrants into the presidential race, and one person who has clearly stated he will not be a new entrant into the uh, presidential race. But the bulk of the podcast is my interview with my colleague from Edelman, uh, James Morris. James is a a strategist who has advised president, has advised political candidates and as well as brands about how to position themselves and has done a lot of work in the polling arena. Um, I thought it'd be really interesting to hear from an an industry insider about how candidates tend to use polling um, at this stage of a race um, and how they think about understanding their, their prospects um, as, as candidates consider whether to enter a presidential race or not, and consider how to run once they're in. Um, so really interesting interview with James, um, which I think is well worth your time. We cover a lot of ground. And as always, we will play the gut check game at the end of that. So a quick news roundup for you today. Before we get to the primary news this week, uh, in the wee small hours of this morning, that's Friday, the president's close friend and advisor Roger Stone was arrested by the FBI and charged with seven counts of felony indictment, including, amongst others, obstruction of justice and witness, witness tampering. If you're keeping count, that means that Robert Mueller's investigation into Russian ele- election tempering has so far resulted in 99 indictments, including of the president's former national security advisor, the president's former campaign manager, the president's personal lawyer, the president's foreign policy advisor during the campaign, and now, of course, his, his longtime friend and advisor. No doubt he will be reassuring us any moment now that he is not a crook, but let it be noted that the record does not bear out that statement. In primary news... Uh, We had the rare non-announcement this week at a time when it feels like everybody in the world is telling us that they are running. Senator Chris Murphy of Connecticut informed us that he is definitely not running. He said, quote, I've been pretty transparent about this, but let me be 100% clear. I'm not running in 2020. I love the job I have now. And at least two or three Democrats in the Senate need to stay behind and keep the fight going here, which raises a good point. We have, if anything, a surplus of great presidential candidates, um, but we also have significant opportunities in the midterm, uh, sorry, in the, uh, we also have significant opportunities in the 2020 election in Senate in the Senate and Congress. It would be a terrible shame if we were unable to take advantage of those opportunities because we didn't have enough candidates. Really, we only need one excellent pre- presidential candidate next in 2020. We will need 100 good Senate candidates and 435 excellent House candidates. So some of those folks who are thinking about running, if you uh, feel that maybe you're not So confident that you are the best candidate for president, but you really want to put yourself forward, there's always the Senate. Um, In other news, Senator Kamala Harris, speaking of senators, um, is in fact running for president. Senator Harris is a senator in the state of California. She's a former prosecutor. Um, She, if you have been watching, Congressional hearings. She's been a real superstar um, in congressional hearings, which is perhaps not surprising given her prosecutorial background and her work as Attorney General. She really knows how to make herself heard in an adversarial context. She's really smart. She's got some very interesting ideas. So it will be fascinating to see um, how she how she goes in this in this election. Um, if you're keeping track, that means there are now four significant female presidential candidates on the Democratic side um, of the nine who have formally announced so far. Um, So that's nearly half, which is a lot better than than I would say women typically do in politics. In other primary news, uh, Pete Buttigieg, is in fact running. Pete uh, Buttigieg is the mayor of South Bend, Indiana. And if you're hearing the sound of my voice, you can hear that I've been practicing how to say his name. Um, He's perfectly happy if we call him Mayor Pete. Um, Pete Buttigieg is somebody who put himself forward into the national consciousness for the first time when he ran for DNC chair last year. And that was a really interesting race because um, I think a lot of people would say about Pete in that race that he did well by losing. In other words, he didn't win. He didn't come that close to winning, but in the process of not coming that close, he therefore made a lot of friends and made almost no enemies. Um, so it was a really good entry into the national, international politics. And I think he's a, a younger candidate. Um, I think he's about 37 years old. So just, just on the cusp of uh, legally being eligible for, for president um, with, where the cutoff constitutionally is 35. So Pete's a really, interesting candidate. Um, I think a lot of people are calling him a, an also a, a sort of outsider candidate right now. Um, I think it'd be interesting to see what he does, because in fact, he's been pretty smart about how he's positioned himself so far. He is also, it's worth noting, um, openly gay and married to a male person, um, which I think is noteworthy. Um, and it's almost noteworthy because it's not that noteworthy. Um, we haven't the Democratic Party has come a long way on LGBTQ issues, and uh, one of the ways in which we've moved far on LGBTQ issues is that um, Pete Buttigieg's sexuality is not necessarily even the most interesting thing about him, but it's, it's a fact worth noting, and it's a sign of progress that we have serious candidates who are on all parts of that spectrum. So um, a lot going on this week. And um, we will obviously be keeping, keeping track of what else goes on in terms of unfolding presidential criminality. But our interest on this podcast is really about the Democrats who can help us get the president out of office. This week we're going to talk a little bit about polling. We haven't talked much about polling on this podcast so far, but it's worth understanding what value and purpose do polls really have at this very early stage of the process. Are polls at this point predictive of anything? What would a good poll number even look like for a candidate at this point in the race? Um, With so many names being polled and so long until the first voter casts any votes, um, what does it all mean? To help me understand this, I'm talking to my Edelman colleague, James Morris. James is a strategist and was formerly a partner at Greenberg Quinlan Rosner Polling Firm. Hey, James. Hey,
1: Karen.
0: Thank you for taking the time to talk to us today. Um, We are two years out from a general election and just over a year out from the first voter casting a vote in the first primary. Are the polls actually meaningful at this point in the cycle?
1: Um, Well, there are two types of polls. Um, They're the polls that you'll read in the newspaper with horse race numbers, and they're the polls that campaigns do to try and decide um, how to position and what is the best strategy for them going forwards. Um, those are private. The bad news is that the um, first set of polls, the public polls, are really not very useful. It's only the second set that really are. Um, and the reason for that, particularly those sort of horse race numbers for the primary, is that at the moment they're really mainly measuring name recognition. Um yep. it, Because most most people, even you know, lots of registered Democrats, won't know who lots of the different candidates are. And so the best way to do well is to be famous. Um, By the time you've been through an election campaign and had lots of scrutiny on your positions and your backstory and lots of opportunity to set out your message, you will be famous. There'll be other things that you're being judged on. Um, And so these polls don't tell you anything about where you'll end up.
0: So just to cover it, so that first type of poll is what we've seen any publicly released poll at this point is going to be that first type of poll, typically run by a media entity. And all of those polls right now, as would be predicted by what you just said, are showing Joe Biden, the former vice president, and Bernie Sanders, who came in second in the last presidential election, as the kind of one in two candidates with with Biden being, being well ahead of the pack hovering from about the mid 20s to the to the low 30s. But you're saying that's probably just checking the fact that people recognise Joe Biden.
1: Right. Joe Biden is more famous than Sheryl Brown. That's what that poll means. Right. Um, and that doesn't that that is is not irrelevant, because that will be true, particularly in, in primary states, having a name recognition advantage is helpful. So it's not irrelevant that he, that he has a higher level of name recognition. Um, and also, you know, his favorability numbers mean more. People have had time to form an opinion about him and so they'll be harder to shift. So if they're high, that that is helpful. Um, so they do tell you something about views of him and they also do condition the coverage a bit. People pay more attention to people nearer the top. So it's sort of tactically helpful. But in terms of telling you who is most likely to win, in particularly the you know, primaries, a little bit later on in the process, they don't tell you much at all.
0: What about, um, still sticking with the publicly released polls that are not the type that you're talking about, the campaigns will run internally, what about specific polls that are specific to a state? Are Iowa polls interesting at this point in the contest?
1: Not really, um, because the the issue is similar. I think uh, as candidates spend more time in the States, it will start to tell you more. So if, for example, um, uh, Elizabeth Warren spends a lot of time in Iowa and her Iowa numbers don't move up, that will tell you something. Um, yep. But sort of while that kind of intense campaigning isn't happening, the the basic problem of name recognition and lacking a, an identity exists across the country and so the poll still doesn't really tell you that much
0: right okay which is pretty what but it's good here an official so let's turn to the other type of poll if you are advising a candidate at this point in the process what would you be telling them to what what type of polls should they be conducting and what should they be doing at this point to try and understand where they would position themselves and get a realistic sense of what their chances are in in the primary process so i think there are quite a
1: few different things they they need to know um and there are also some sort of tendencies from candidates that are that are unhelpful um in terms of thinking about what what is what to poll so there is a, there's a tendency to think that policy and position matters. You know, and that's where in the last uh, general election, the Clinton campaign put a lot of effort into policy and position, and then rounding out her backstory to make her a bit more sympathetic. Yeah. It's not particularly a winning strategy because votes aren't primarily driven by policy and position. Um, so what you, some of the things that candidates need to know are who are the voters that are available to them and um, how do they build a coalition big enough to uh, win in specific geographies because it's still geography based so you need to know you know th- there are some states with more african american voters in them some with less some states that are more conservative some less so they need to work out what is a viable coalition given their identity and worldview um, to put together wins in enough places to still be in the race two months after it starts um, they need to think about how to articulate themselves, where they come from, what their backstory is. Um, You see like Elizabeth Warren's um, launch materials really emphasise her story, uh, her upbringing, her roots, what she's achieved and that sense of being a a challenge to Wall Street, for example.
0: Yeah, it was was really interesting. Yeah, Warren was interesting because I think she's got a really sweet spot in that her personal story touches really closely on her campaign narrative. It's this whole struggling middle class. That's the background she comes from. So she really tied them very closely together, which I thought was pretty smart.
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, and and it, you know, it, it probably doesn't take a poll to say that if you can if you can show that your politics is rooted in your personal experience, it gives you a higher level of credibility trust and authenticity than if you sound like you came to your politics in a seminar room right um, but how to specifically make that link and what you know cause there are polls there are also dial tests and testing the, the films that they shoot and mm-hmm. which is the exact shot of her childhood home that works best is the kind of thing that is something you concretely learn from a poll now so you put together the ad and um, you show it to some people they tell you what, what, how it makes them feel, which bits work, which bits don't. You show them some alternative shots. They tell you if they're better yep. or worse. You put it back together. And then you've got your ad that you're going to air to launch with. That's the way so when that you the say, is used now.
0: Is that is that in focus group format, or are you doing multiple surveys? What is the structure of this type of polling uh, so, for, for ad judgment?
1: So it will vary a lot. Um, you can use focus groups to get a qualitative sense. Um, mm-hmm. Focus groups where you bring together a group of people who have broadly similar experiences and worldview, you show them something, you get them to discuss it, you listen to the conversation. But you can also um, use a sort of blended digital approach where you, instead of having 10 people in a room, you can show the video online to 500 people and get them to rate it. And then you can yep. pull people who reacted negatively, you can pull them aside and ask them why. And people who reacted positively, you can pull them aside and ask them why. One of the challenges with that is security of the video, because you don't want your campaign ads, uh, particularly the, the pre-test version of it, to, to leak. So there's still a strong argument for face-to-face formats where you're in a room where people put their phones down before they come in and things can't leak. Um, But it's a mixture of those two things in terms of testing ads, in terms of messaging and positioning, there's still a lot of just traditional polling where you ask people verbal questions, they respond to them, you've got a set of answer codes, and from that you construct your sense of what will work, what won't. and. who who you can persuade so you can see who shifts in your favour after they hear various things.
0: Yeah. So it's actually, there's a lot of science and a lot of art, basically. A bit of both.
1: Yes, yes, a lot. Because you, and, and the real limit is that people can only pay attention to so much and it's much less than you want to know. So the art is knowing which are the right questions to ask um, mm-hmm. and to, so to give you um, an example this is an example from the UK but it's, but it's in the public domain. so during the uh, or two general elections ago in the UK, um, we were doing some work for the Labour Party for Ed Miliband leader of the Labour Party and there was a discussion about whether he should support an EU uh, referendum, a referendum on Britain's continuing membership of the EU which you know he subsequently had after he lost the election um, in a poll if we asked people, do you think there should be a referendum on Britain's continued membership of the EU? 70, 80% said, yes, there should be a referendum on that. So Mm -hmm. if you were a poll driven politician, you might say, well, okay, I better support a referendum. Mm -hmm. However, if we asked a different question, if we, if we showed them a video of him opposing a referendum and saying, I know that lots of people think this is a good thing to do, but I don't it's not a priority for me I've got other things to focus on and I know that won't be popular but I'm here to tell you what I think we need to do as a country that tested through the roof that was the most positive thing he ever said even though he was on the opposite side of the debate to 70% of the country Um, so knowing which of those two things to look at matters and there was a third question which explained why uh, two two Further questions explained why it was a good thing rather than a bad thing to do. One was if you ask people how much do you care about a referendum, only a very small fraction cared. So they supported it, but they didn't really care whether it happened or not. Um, and secondly, if you asked what traits do you most want in a leader, they wanted strength and candor. Mm-hmm. So you so you've got so that explains why his response did well. But if you just asked the policy position question, you'd have come to the wrong conclusion. And there's no science into knowing what combination of questions will get you to the most insightful position.
0: See, I think that's a really helpful example, because it brings us back to you, you talked earlier about policy is not what people make their voting judgment on. And that can lead people to the conclusion that voters make bad decisions. But it's actually more complicated than that, isn't it? They vote about the things they care about. And a lot of those things they care about are personal characteristics of the candidate and judgments about trust and, and credibility and authenticity, which are serious things in their own right. They're just outside of the policy space.
1: Yes, exactly. And, and they... I think they sensibly think um, you you will not have a policy for every eventuality, and even if you do, I will not be paying attention to it um, so I need to know what kind of person you are and what your character will be um, and and you know for good or ill, at the last election in the u s Trump communicated his character pretty clearly um <laughs> Uh, and people, people sort of may have disagreed with specific, all kinds of specific policies that he had, but they thought that he would make America great again, that he would put America first, and so on and so forth, and they, and for whatever reason, you know, particularly in, in some of those states he won unexpectedly, those values and that characteristic worked, and also that sense that he was independent. Um, that mattered more than the policy positions.
0: And that, I think with that in mind, and bear in mind, where we are in the process. So what we're really looking at right now is we're, we're seeing a lot of early media stories talking about candidates entering the race. And actually, it feels like what you're saying is that early narrative that's being set up could be very, very important, given that um, it will be how people might judge for the first time some of these names that they haven't heard before. Um, they're starting to make a judgment about how the candidate's character is presenting itself in the public arena. Um, so even though it's very early on, some of these stories might set up a narrative that might have longevity, potentially.
1: Yeah. Ex- yes, exactly. Because what one, once... When you're a blank slate, you are both vulnerable and have more opportunity than you ever will again. You're vulnerable because someone else can define you, but you have opportunity because you can define yourself. Um, Once you've done that and introduced yourself, um, then you can't really shift perceptions. You can only deepen them. So when Bill Clinton ran as the man from Hope, because he was from Hope, Arkansas, and told that story of his um, challenged upbringing... Established him as a certain kind of person that he could then build on. I mean, he could have told a different story about, you know, the man from who went to Oxford University, but he didn't, <laughs> and, and that, that carried with him.
0: Yeah. So. With that in mind, then, um, and bearing in mind the other thing that you mentioned earlier on, which is about building a coalition, um, there was a really interesting article in 538 this week um, where they were trying to assess the, the, the qualities of the different candidates in terms of their ability to pull together the different elements of the Democratic coalition. So they had five groupings, so party loyalists, the left of the party, um, millennials and friends, so the younger cosmopolitan elite, black voters, and then Hispanic voters who are somewhat similar to Asian voters. And the premise of this article was that if you can pull together kind of three of these five groups then and, and form a coalition with them, then you have a path to winning the Democratic primary, which seems right to me in terms of what I know about who's in the party but it also seems to me that these five groups can't easily be brought together unless you have one bigger narrative to tell about who you are and where you're coming from, because they're different interest groups with different points of view. What are your thoughts on that? And do you, do you kind of tend to agree with that 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 breakdown of the, the primary electorate?
1: Um, so I think it's a, it's a very sensible way of breaking it down. As he says in the article, there are other ways of thinking about it too. Um, And it slightly depends which candidate you are, what is the most helpful way of um, thinking about your electorate. So if you are coming out of a Bernie Sanders style of politics, then it then it then it makes a lot of sense. Hopefully I've got the left or at least I need to beat off whoever my uh, compete against the whoever else is on the left who might be my challenger in this space. And then I've got that. Millennials are closest in terms of worldview, and then through policy or something else, perhaps I can reach out to one of the other blocks. So it it makes sense. If you are someone like um, uh, Joe Biden or someone who's more of an establishment sort of Democrat who will find it harder to reach uh, out to some of the, the other kind of demographic blocks, then you probably think about the electorate separately, differently it would make more sense to think I win this if I can establish myself as the best challenge to Trump.
0: Mm-hmm. What
1: do I need to do to show that I am fighting him? And you might think about, well, how do I rise up above all the other candidates? So while well, they're taking, you know, while well, Beto and Bernie are fighting with each other about who's really authentically-
0: uh, Millennial liberal. enough.
1: <laughs> yeah. Um, I will be carrying the fight to the Republicans. And when they're having their battles, I'll be saying, you know, we mustn't fight each other, we must fight the other side. And that that kind of approach isn't about being the most millennial-friendly candidate. It is about trying to find ways to bring those groups together. So I guess the risk with the way the way that Nate Silver segments it is you might think you you might think the electorate is more atomized than it is, and perhaps those groups have more overlapping interests than he suggests. Um and for some candidates, it will help to emphasise the overlapping interests, and for others, it will help to, to yeah. try and drive wedges between them.
0: But that's part of the problem, isn't it? Because I think it, it is clear that there is across every every Democrat, certainly in the United States of America, right now, there is a urgent the sense of urgency and desperation almost to beat Donald Trump. But there is very little consensus about how to go about that and it seems to me the winner of the primary is going to be the candidate who whether they turn out to be right or wrong does the best job of convincing us not only that they are right on the policies, but they are the best challenge to trump and we are wide open right now in terms of what that's going to look like and we're already seeing people test a lot of different approaches
1: Yeah, yeah i think that's right and so i think that is a different kind of poll actually that is really worth paying attention to which is if you care about beating uh, the other side, then it is worth trying to work out what will work best and there's this big debate between whether it is, um, it depends how you characterise it, but is it bold policy or is it triangulation? Um, mm-hmm. And that is kind of an empirical question. Uh, so you know that Miliband case that I talked about earlier was an example where a kind of bold policy was better than triangulating and meeting the electorate halfway through. There are other cases that are different, but it is worth looking at polls coming out of organizations like Democracy Corps and elsewhere that look at some of those strategic questions and, and tell you, you know, what, what is more likely to bring someone over who, who you know, was a Democrat in their youth and is now a Republican voter in Mackham County, Michigan, or any of those kind of bellwether um, places.
0: And I mean, I guess that's the other big debate that's happening in the party is almost, and and this is what's playing out in some of the personality differences that we're seeing, is there's a big debate amongst the Democrats about whether our best electoral bet is converting Trump voters who may have been weakly affiliated to him in the last election and sort of split the difference almost between between Hillary and Trump at the last minute by voting Trump. Do we try to win them over or? Do we try to get back some of the voters that we lost because there were Democrats who voted for Obama in 2012 and 2008 who either didn't vote in this election um, or you know, who basically didn't vote in 2016? And then there are voters who have never voted at all. And I think it's a false dichotomy because you do need to do a little bit of both. But in terms of where they're positioning the messaging, do you have a sense of whether – one or the other of the two strategies is is the best approach or how you would test whether which approach is right?
1: Yeah, so I suppose there's a few bits of that. One is which which is the best strategy? Strategy depends a bit on the candidate. So sure. some candidates would do a better job of motivating um, ephemeral voters, people who sometimes vote, sometimes don't, than other candidates. Um, so it, 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 there's a bit of chicken and egg uh, there isn't a best strategy. There's a best strategy given yeah. the candidate. Kind of um The other thing I think that is worth bearing in mind is that sort of turnout-based approach sounds quite a lot like the Clinton approach. Um,
0: yeah.
1: And, it, well, it didn't work very well. Um, <laughs> and the really interesting thing about the Obama campaign is he also drove up turnout, but he didn't do it by talking loads about identity so yeah. he, he, he didn't you know she she did I'm with her as a way of I guess trying to raise turnout or at least to share the vote amongst women he didn't he didn't do he didn't he didn't talk about his identity to raise turnout and affiliation with african-american voters he talked about other stuff so he it, it is, if you know your well, target audience well, is a certain group, it doesn't mean you have to, and that it's defined by their identity, it doesn't mean you have to bang on about millennial issues and, and say as a, as a candidate with millennial kids, or, it, that isn't going to drive up turnout. You've got to talk about what they care about and they don't live their lives through that prism of identity all the time.
0: I think that's I think that's the crux of it, isn't it? This is not a paint by numbers game. It's not a insert policy X and identity identity Y and achieve output Z, yeah. is it? It's, it's it's kind of as Obama did it. It was as much poetry as prose, right? It was, he tapped into Amer- African American voters by being himself in the public sphere, and he didn't win African American voters until after he won Iowa because what he was able to tell them is. I can win with these white folks, basically. I yeah. mean, it was it was really a strategy of I'm not going to worry about this. I'll I'll make my best case to the voters of Iowa, and if I can win there, then I will, can be the hope of voters who are looking for um, who who are excited to vote for an African American candidate but have been nervous to do so. And that was a very clear strategy. But it wasn't kind of I will do X, Y, and Z. It was it was flew, fell naturally out from who he was and the way he wanted to run the race.
1: Yeah, and and, and that's. That sort of shows how important character and values are. So I, I think too much of internal party discussions in, in, in a lot of countries is about policy, specific policies. Voters, for most issues, voters do not have a view about what is the best policy, um, and they end up following the partisan cue. As if my party thinks that, then that's probably right. Um, because they haven't got the time or headspace to devote to what is the best funding model for um, continuing education.
0: That's why we have a representative democracy.
1: Right. So but what they do want to know is, is the person who's going to represent me someone who shares my values and who has the strength to stand up for themselves? Um, and and if, if you think of it through that lens, you get to a much more human type of campaigning, uh, and you end up with with candidates who are able to connect with voters.
0: Which sounds like a way of saying, when in doubt, be yourself, and hope that yourself is good enough.
1: That is what the process should do. Actually, if the primary process works well, <laughs> it shouldn't. It shouldn't be a way for not very good candidates to become good enough. It should be a way yeah. of finding the candidate who has the best ability to connect and represent the people whose interests they want to serve. And which is the whole country to an extent, but not just the whole country. There'll be, there'll be you know, it breaks down a bit below that.
0: I completely agree. And I think that's, that is absolutely what we hope the primary process will do. And of course, each candidate has a different approach to it. But as a, as a voter who is watching this campaign um, with excitement and trepidation, um, I, I am very much hopeful that that is how the process will play out, that people will come forward as the people and the candidates that they are. And that will result in us hopefully nominating the person who both we can get excited about in terms of representing our beliefs and also can get Donald Trump's unworthy ass out of the White House. So may it be so. Um, James, thank you so much for your time. Would you be able to stick around and we'll play we'll play the gut check game.
1: I've been looking forward to this game all week.
0: (laughs) Fabulous. So, for those of you who are new to the podcast, um, the way this works is I have my trusty Red Sox baseball cap. Inside of the baseball cap are the names of some people who um, may or may not be running for president, um, but who people have talked about as if they might be running for president. I'm going to pull out a name and we'll each just kind of quickly say, what does our gut tell us about that person? So, without further ado, I'm going to announce that the 2020 Democratic nominee is Senator Sherrod Brown of Ohio. Hmm.
1: Um, well, I suppose if he managed to win the primary, he probably had some traits that I haven't seen.
0: Uh, <laughs> but, oh, that's dismissive. Um,
1: <laughs> but he does. He. You he feel to me, I guess the question is whether he can inspire enough confidence and trust or whether he feels too soft to be able to show leadership
0: interesting okay so your gut is worried about basically whether he's got the the toughness
1: yeah we, I, it, it's not what he personally does because he may well do but it's whether he communicates yeah. it yeah
0: whether he gets it across yeah interesting so my my gut check reaction is whenever i hear ohio i get really interested so um I have complicated feelings about Sherrod Brown because he does win in Ohio, and frankly, Democrats haven't been winning in Ohio lately, so I'd be interested in hearing what he has to say about winning in that state. Although, having said that, in the in the midterm election a lot, late last year, he, he won convincingly, but not by quite as much as we thought he might, as his poll numbers seem to indicate, so... Um, maybe he is not the, uh, Ohio whisperer that we are, that we are wishing for. Um, but he is, a, a he does a good job, I think, of representing a particular constituency of rust belt, roll up your shirt sleeve, talking to the workers type of politics. Um, that's an important part of the coalition. So I'm happy to see him in the race. Let's see where he goes. Right. Shall we do another one? Go on in. One more. One more. All right. Okay. Ah, here we go. Oh, I was wondering when this name was going to come up. Okay, at long last, for you fa- you fans who have been waiting for this, uh, the 2020 Democratic nominee is former Texas Congressman Beto O'Rourke. It's quite
1: hard to separate personal reaction from from (laughs) I suppose it's a gut check so what's
0: your personal reaction say?
1: I think it's quite exciting I mean like he demonstrated an ability in Texas to to bring out a coalition of voters who haven't come out for Democrats like that before Um, he is charismatic he's not polished he's not finished but he is charismatic Um, I think some of the Things he's being attacked for now by the left are probably net helpful. If you get towards a, a general election, it's a less of a sharp pivot. Um, he has um, really good communication skills. So, so uh, all of that is judging him as a candidate. As a president, I don't know. And I, I suppose that is a question mark because As you get from the primary to the general people start trying to judge them as presidents they didn't make a great decision last time though so um so i think i think that would be i'd feel i feel good about it
0: yeah i i think i feel good about it too i uh it's interesting though because i i of all the candidates i've looked at so far beto is the one who feels the most obama-y in the sense of the most young upstart speaking in a new way to new voters, you know, ready to change the landscape. In the way that Obama did in, in this point in the primary in 2007. So I don't know to what extent there are like neural pathways in my in in my brain that are just going yes that candidate yeah. <laughs> that's the way it works, um, which isn't right because it's a different election and it's a different circumstance. But um, I like to see people going to the voters in different ways. I like to see people um, bravely being who they are. And I think he does a good job of of being confident in the person that he is. And I think you know we talked earlier about character and judgment. You know, we have a lot that we still need to see from him about how he's going to run and what policies he wants to advocate for. But he does a good job of giving you the impression that his character is out there for you to see and that, you know, he is who he is and he's confident in that. And he'll he'll speak truth to tr- his truth to, to the voter. So I think that's I yeah. think people respond well to that. I, I I think that's never a bad thing. I agree with that. Great stuff. Well, listen, James, it's been absolute delight to talk to you about this. Um, And I will see you at the office on Monday. But thank you so yes. much for your time. I really appreciate it. You. Thank bye you. Bye bye. And that's it for this week. As always, you can reach me on Twitter. I'm at KarenJR. That's K-A-R-I-N-J-R on Twitter. Or if you are using the mobile version of the Anchor podcast app, you can leave me a voicemail in the app. No one ever does that, but I say it just in case. I live in hope. So this week, you can be one of the people to surprise me. Um, If you are listening, I would love to hear your thoughts on which candidates you think are genuinely, if we have a front runner, who do you think is, is, is likely to perform better? who's likely to perform worse, where do you think the the state of the race really is, no matter what the polls might say. Um, I'd be really interested in your thoughts on that. Um, In the meantime, as always, if you haven't registered to vote, please do so at votefromabroad.org if you are overseas, or at vote.org if you are back home in the USA. And I will check check in with you next week, and have a great week.